All right, so this is the new season. This is season four. It's been several months since I've recorded a podcast, and uh, I'm real prepared for this one, so it's, it's nice and good. We appreciate it. So I'm going to introduce, I'm very fortunate to be with uh, two guests in person in London in a very um, swanky hotel uh, that's set up like To Catch a Predator from uh, NBC there, because that was a fun show. Uh, so here we go. So the first guest for the fourth time, because he loves me so much, Mr. Dr. Professor Ryan Abbott, who I had as a professor at the University of Surrey in Guildford, England. He is a licensed physician, attorney, and acupuncturist in the U.S. You like that one? <laughs> You're reading the bio from your own website. That's right. You gotta keep it. You gotta keep it legit. And his legal research has focused on the areas of AI and intellectual property issues in the biotechnology and pharmaceutical industries. And his book, *The Reasonable Robot: Artificial Intelligence and the Law*, is fantastic, and I'd highly recommend that to everybody. And Sweet. to the left. Mr. Jacob Turner is a lawyer and author based in the UK. He's acted for sovereign states such as Argentina, Greece, Russia, and Iraq. Jacob holds law degrees from Oxford University UK and Harvard University USA, and has lectured at universities including Oxford, Cambridge, and King's College London. He has previously worked as a speechwriter for a UN ambassador and as a clerk to the UK Supreme Court Justice. And from the last episode um, that Jacob was on, we discussed his book, Robot Rules, Regulating Artificial Intelligence, which explains why AI is unique, what legal and ethical problems it could cause, and how we can address them. And it's really cool to be... Oh, it's nice to meet you for the first time in person. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, I'm sure Ryan's kind of sick of me at this point. I don't know that I'm interesting enough for four times, but I'll do my best. <laughs> Buddy, we're going to keep this going. We're going to keep it going. We're going to just keep, keep going. We're going to be eight, nine like seasons your pull-ups. In. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So, um, I mean, you're both very interesting guys, and there's a lot we're going to get into, and we got an hour of, of shit-talking to go through. Um, we did coordinate our outfits for this. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and I showed up all nice and, and formal as well. But at, well least, at least I remembered my jewelry, so that part works out okay. But um, you want to start? Should we start off with you? Sure. All right. So tell us, so it's been a year since we last chatted. Um, so just tell us a little bit about what we've been up to in the last year, and we'll just go from there. Um, well, on the AI side of things, it's been a really interesting year. Um, the temperature is definitely hotting up for businesses and organizations in terms of really needing to put the principles of ethical AI that people have been talking about for a very long time into practice, because they we're now starting to clarify exactly what these very high-level principles mean. People say things like AI should be used for good, AI shouldn't be used for bad. If you look down at uh, various big companies' um, AI principles, they'll be very high-level, very vague. But now we're starting to see what it actually means in practice, and we're starting to see regulators and private sector organisations, claimant bodies, uh, trades unions, worker representatives, actually starting to try and invoke some of their rights with respect to AI. Um, so we're at the legislative level, the, we've seen the first piece of law on this in China, um, came into force earlier in this, this year, it's to do with algorithmic recommendation um, programs online, but really it could cover a huge 
number of things, whether it's advertising, whether it is um, uh, something to do with um, medical technology, whether it's financial, all of these things would be covered by China's regulations. And we've also got regulations in the EU being developed. And in just the last couple of days, we've had the uh, US Bill of Rights for AI come out of the White House. I'd be very interested in your guys' thoughts on, uh, on, on that. As well. I didn't even know that happened, well, so are. I have no <laughs> thoughts. Maybe we'll some during the conversation. <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, it's, it, the, the, um, the space is definitely uh, getting, uh, it's, it's being, it's, it's like paint by numbers. We're, we're, we're finally starting to see these blocks being filled in. We're starting to see a, a picture emerging. And that means it's a really exciting space to be in. Um, in terms of helping organizations work out what this actually means and what next steps they can take. Did you know about this Bill of Rights thing? I did know about the Bill of oh, Rights thing. You didn't mention it when we chatted the other day. I don't think it had happened at that point. Oh, really? It's a very oh, yeah. Very, oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, it's All just right. the last couple of days. There you go. You want to hop on that or you want to start from what you've been up to lately? And then we'll catch up. I want to talk about that. That sounds interesting. Well, that does sound interesting. <laughs> I was going to talk about my Conquerors game on Saturday. So, um, Bill of Rights for AI. <laughs> yeah, 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 we'll do that. We're going to get to that Conquer stuff later. But yeah, okay. So let's let's hear about that then. Oh, the Bill of Rights for yeah. Conquerors? Conquerors at the end. Oh, okay. Bill of Rights now. Let's do that. Oh, well, as Jacob said, the White House released a you know Bill of Rights for AI, which is a series of principles that they believe industry should adhere to, but it is at the moment kind of a non-binding advisory and as Jacob was saying a few years ago it focuses on general principles of governance and I think Jacob makes a good point you know most people at this point have more or less settled on basic principles of AI governance although there are many of them and they are different but they are things like you know benevolence and accountability and transparency and explainability although the devil's really in the details when things get difficult, when you have, you know, healthcare applications that have better outcomes through lack of explainability, or when you have allocation of healthcare resources where explainability is critical, and so the devil's in the details. And also, some companies are doing a pretty good job of self-regulation, and there's a concern that others won't be doing that, and that we need perhaps. The EU certainly thinks we need more binding regulations, which is why they've now come out with their AI regulations, so they're not yet in force, which you know, puts AI on a risk categorization scale where it says there's some things you just can't do with AI, some things you're going to have to do a lot of upfront regulation on them, like a medical device almost, and some things will let you get started right away and you'll have some regulations doing back end. So then being based out of England, because you're the one who brought it up first. How does that affect your work? Because what's you know when it comes to laws, as far as we know, most laws are within a nation, right? But the fact that AI is different, where it's worldwide, you know, how do you govern that? I know we've talked about that on the other podcasts as well, but it's unique in in that way. Um, so how does that how does that affect you and your work? My practice is global, so I will. Okay will often advise companies from different parts of the world and often those companies will have global businesses. There might be an insurer which operates in markets from North America, South America, Europe, different parts of Asia. So the fact that I'm based in England physically doesn't right. necessarily have too much of an effect on the laws that I'm advising on. And even 
Ryan made a really good point that we're seeing lots of um, uh, different uh, rules being developed around the world, lots of different sets of principles, but actually, at least at the moment, my take on it, I'd be very interested in your thoughts, but my take is that there is a, a large amount of overlap and agreement, regardless of what jurisdiction you're looking at, actually people tend to agree on what the core concept should be, at least at a high level, maybe not necessarily quite in the details yet. But even comparing something like the Chinese regulations to what's being asked for in Europe, to what UNESCO said should be the general principles of AI ethics, actually it all looks pretty similar, which means that from the perspective of someone advising businesses and other organisations, actually you can, one can do it at the moment um, on a cross-border basis, because broadly speaking it's the same kinds of things businesses ought to be doing anywhere in the world. Oh, that's interesting. So, <laughs> but you you have you have global clients who you will advise on, say, North and South American AI regulations. Um, yeah. So there won't be AI regulations necessarily enforced in in North and South America. So in in North America, there will be um, it's it mostly state based. So there is, for example, the New York City. AI hiring law, which is going to come into force uh, on the 1st of January next year, which requires certain um, uh, employers who are using algorithms to judge candidates for jobs to be audited every year uh, by an independent auditor and to provide certain information with respect to metrics that they are achieving based on US uh, equal opportunities laws and regulations. But that's literally just in New York City. Right. So if you go even up into upstate New York, that doesn't apply. So it's very fragmented, partly partly based upon the uh, federal system within the US. Whereas in other jurisdictions, like, like the EU, as Ryan was saying, we're going to have uh, something which goes across all EU countries. And even though you, you made the interesting point that at the beginning that most laws are territorial in nature, the EU explicitly tries to be extraterritorial with these kinds of laws. It did that with the GDPR, the General Data Protection Regulation, and it's going to do the same thing with the AI regulation when it comes into force. And the reason why it likes to do this is because one of the main arguments against regulating anything is that it will put businesses within your jurisdiction at a competitive disadvantage. So people might say, well, why would we base ourselves in the EU if we're going to be subject to this, this regulation that we're not subject to outside of the EU? So what the EU says is, aha, don't worry about that, we'll just regulate everyone around the world. And so it makes it very difficult to ignore um, a regulation, even if you're based outside of Europe. If you want to have any kind of dealing within Europe, if you want to access the deep markets within Europe, then you're going to be subject to those regulations and you might be subject to fines as we've seen for example in the data protection space with Amazon getting extremely large fines, with Google getting very large fines or indeed in the antitrust, the competition law space with Microsoft historically getting very large fines even though it's a US company because it operates in Europe it's subject to European legislation and the same will apply for AI. Any comment to that? No, that sounds right. You know, the, the, there aren't too many AI regulations that are out that businesses have to adhere to at the moment, but they are coming, and people know they're coming, and they're starting to come. You know, I think data privacy is a good example of how this has kind of, you know, generated a framework like this a few years earlier. So you have GDPR, which, you know, was at the time, you know, the leading act. It's still kind of the dominant one because 
you have to follow it for operations that are related to Europe. And as a practical matter for most companies, that just means they follow it everywhere. Because it's very difficult for a lot of companies to say, all right, well, when we're dealing business in Europe, we're going to have these systems in place. And when we're dealing business in the States, we're going to have these systems in place. And then California adopted, you know, and they're now amending their data privacy law, which is a good bit like the EU. And, you know, Illinois has a pretty strict data privacy law. And so, you know, at the end of the day, everyone's trying to accommodate the highest degree of regulation, and this just ends up harmonizing things. You know, there aren't a lot of, you know, it would be difficult if you had a Illinois and a California or an EU-based regulation that had different, contra you know, contradictory regulations where one really did have to separate out their um, operations. Uh, but we haven't seen that yet, and hopefully businesses aren't going to see in the AI regulation space. But I think, as Jacob said, the EU wants to be the world leader, well, or he didn't say this exactly, but the EU wants to be the world leader in regulating AI and setting standards for consumer protection and, you know, in an EU value sort of way, you know, to get companies that are operating here and around the world on board with their program. And there are some value-based differences, you know, for example, in data privacy between the EU and China. And, you know, one of the things the EU did, which was, you know, kind of perhaps a direct response to Chinese activity was to outlaw the AI regulations, citizen scoring using AI. So that's where you have a citizen score for someone like a credit score based on how good of a citizen they are. For me, I think this is actually an example of why, you know, you might not want AI specific regulations or they might not be exactly the right way to go. You know, I don't think that Europe was reacting to AI being used for citizen scoring as much as they were reacting to the idea of not liking citizen scoring. And, you know, if that's something that they wanted to ban, you know, it's something they should prevent a company from using with a piece of paper or an Excel spreadsheet or some very sophisticated machine learning algorithm. So I'm going <clears> to <throat> throw this pinata out in the middle and I'll let you guys kind of hit it and see what happens. So, uh, so far we're discussing regulations at a top level, kind of more at a, at a conceptual level. But as that trickles down, and I guess maybe getting into that data protection stuff, maybe that's how it starts affecting individuals. But why would a regular person, um, or how would this affect regular people as these concepts um, start becoming more enacted? And then I guess the second one I want to say is, um, why is the EU so concerned about, or maybe not concerned, but why is it that they want to be the ones to be a worldwide leader when it comes to that? Well, Fight for it. Oh, <laughs> after you, Jacob. <laughs> to your first question, how would this affect a regular person? Mm. So imagine you are sitting at your desk, doing your job, suddenly you get an email which says, we've detected fraud on your account and we're going to terminate your contract. You're no longer employed by us. We can't tell you what the fraud was, because that would be a security risk, and there's no right of recourse. You can't challenge this. That's it. Terribly sorry. Now, that sounds pretty Kafkaesque, right? It doesn't sound like something which is likely to happen. But actually, that is exactly what happens to a group of Uber and Ola cabs drivers in different countries around the world. They literally just received this text message saying that they were no longer Uber and other cab drivers because fraudulent practices have been detected. And it transpired that these ride-hailing companies had been using algorithms to detect what they perceived to be fraud. 
um, based on uh, um, things which were out of the ordinary, which, which um, based on machine learning programs, in particular detected by convolutional neural nets and generative adversarial nets, were um, uh, thought to be fraudulent. Now, the problem for the, these drivers was, as you can imagine, they weren't particularly happy. You know, they, if, if you've just lost your livelihood, and in particular in a, in, a, in a way that makes it more difficult for you to get other jobs, you're going to want to challenge that. So that is increasingly happening. We are being assessed by algorithms as we do our jobs, uh, and this has been something which has increased because of the COVID pandemic, more people working at home. There's now lots of software that tracks what people are doing automatically. It's just not feasible to have a person checking every single thing that you're doing. It's much more um, easy and cost-effective from, from businesses' perspectives to have this done by algorithms. And a lot of the time this can be very sensible, it can be a very good thing to do, for example, with, with your bank accounts, checking that uh, no one is spending your money in an unauthorised manner. That's much more likely to be picked up by an algorithm, just as your spam filter on your email is much more likely to be uh, effective if it's done by an algorithm rather than, say, by an individual human or indeed a hard-coded traditional static rule. So the technology is there, it can be useful, but it can also have massive effects on people's lives, people's livelihoods, and increasingly these important decisions are being taken, at the very least, using AI. It's quite unusual still for it to be solely automated, which was the case for at least some of these. Uh, decisions with the drivers. Uh, and this is a case that I know about because I represented those drivers in the Amsterdam courts and there's an ongoing uh, uh, case. Uh, it's, uh, it went before the Amsterdam Court of Appeals. Uh, and there have been similar instances around the world. So that's just one example of the way in which algorithms uh, and our rights as against the organisations using algorithms are now having a, a real life effect on people. Good example. Um, you know, there's a lot of ways it affects people. You know, it, it affects people directly and indirectly by regulating what businesses and state services and their jurisdiction can do. So, for example, the EU AI regulations prohibit facial recognition in public places, like in mass, with some exceptions for national security emergencies and such. And you know, that's an issue people care a lot about. You know. There are often misidentifications made, which have landed people in jail. People are concerned about police tracking your every behavior in public, which, you know, if someone wants to, can tell them a lot about you from your political affiliations to your personal life and, you know, could be used in nefarious sorts of ways. It, it even sets, you know, relatively very high regulatory barriers for getting some AI-based products on the market. You know, that has a benefit in that you are more likely then to not have products on the market that are likely to cause unreasonable risk to people. It also has cost to people in that, you know, particularly for startup companies, the cost of adhering to these regulations are quite significant, right? You know, you can't just launch a medical device company yourself. It costs a lot of money to get compliance people in, making sure that your device meets ISO criteria, doing regulatory applications, getting approval. You know, it's a real barrier to entry to entities that aren't big companies. So it has a, a dampening effect on startups and, and small businesses, particularly. Um, you know, so that's a trade-off. 
do we want to let the market sort these things out or do we want to take kind of more of an earlier approach to keeping things off the market? Um, you know, those are a couple ways. Why do I think the E wants to do that? Fundamentally, different regulations and laws reflect values, right? Social yeah, values yeah. that we decide, you know, do we like more of a laissez-faire? Do we want to kind of promote, you know, businesses making more money or do we want to promote consumers having more rights and protections? They aren't always at odds, but they are sometimes. And you know, the EU has a, a relatively globally consumer-centric framework. And they think of themselves as having a very human rights-centric framework. And, you know, I think part of that, you know, viscerally objects to the idea of algorithms making decisions in place of people. You know, the other side of that is that human resource professionals do not always make unfair, unbiased decisions. And, you know, not entirely clear who's making fairer decisions when you're in that situation. And so, you know, as Jacob said, you know, my view is that regulations really ought to be agnostic you know if you can't you know if you can't have an algorithm at uber say we've detected fraud we can't tell you what it is and you're fired which i agree you know shouldn't be the case you probably shouldn't have someone at uber saying we've detected fraud we're not going to tell you what it is you can't appeal it and you're fired right i mean there should be an explanation for what was fraudulent and a right of you know recourse to it what always kind of amuses me with um security or privacy stuff like that um, especially once it's put out in the uh, public sphere, like just for conversation. Because I think when we were at lunch, I was kind of making the comment about the fact that like, a law gets passed and now everybody's a lawyer all of a sudden, or you know, with COVID stuff, everybody's a doctor now, right? And that part always kind of gets me wondering. So when it comes to at the individual level, um, people kind of freaking out about oh, you know, it should be regulating this or it should be regulating that, and talking about the type of fairness where obviously laws get passed because it's reflecting social values, good, bad, or ugly. There's that element to it. I just think it's kind of amusing how, like, you walk around with a, a smartphone in your pocket that knows absolutely everything about you. It knows all your banking, it knows where you go, it knows how long you're there for, it knows, you know, how much porn you watch, how much you don't watch, right? I mean, it knows everything about you. And then people kind of turn around and then get into this debate about, oh, you know, it should be this, it should be that. Like, how do you kind of reconcile that um, as, as being lawyers? I mean, how does that kind of, like, does that affect your job in any way? Like, when you're dealing with clients? Or is it more just kind of one of those things that gets talked about um on social media and people just kind of hash it out, but doesn't really affect you guys in that way. If that makes any sense. I well, well, on your point about uh, mobile phones and uh, other kinds of wearable technology, I remember uh, someone once said something which really stuck with me, which is that if you'd asked a CIA operative in the 1950s, can you ever imagine a time when everyone would carry around a device that records everything they say, everything they do, every thought they have, pretty much, you know, when you type when you type a search query in, they would never have believed that, 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 that people would do that. They would ne it would have been absolutely impossible to contemplate. And yet, as you were saying, that is exactly what we do with smartphones. And why do we do it? Well, it's because they're incredibly helpful. They, yeah. they massively improve our quality of life. And I think there is very much a disparity between what the regulations 
say people care about or what the regulation what values the regulations protect and indeed the way in which those regulations are interpreted by the courts as a result of particularly um, uh, litigious parties bringing claims in order to push the boundaries of rights as far as possible which they are perfectly entitled to do so there's a disparity between those things and what the average person on the street actually cares about because you know, we have all these rights to be protected from cookies and to opt out of this and to opt out of that, but actually people just want to get to their website as quickly as possible. You never read the cookie notice, you just click through it, unless you are in a very, very, very tiny minority of people, <laughs> which, you know, absolutely fine. Some people will, will read through things and will reject all of, all, all of the unnecessary uh, um, uh, elements of um, privacy and basic technologies, but for the most part, people ignore it. Um, because they, generally speaking, don't care. And even if they're asked about whether they care or not, a lot of the answers can be affected by the ways in which the questions are asked. So it's difficult to obtain um, probative uh, statistics on, on, on people's values here. Um, but I, I do think as lawyers that there, there is sometimes that, that issue that you can spend, or companies, our clients, can spend lots of money, lots of resources, creating this very high level of um, compliance program, which they are obliged to do by the laws that are enforced, and they can be fined significant amounts, but actually the people who these things are designed to protect, for the most part, don't care. That said, there are always the cases where you don't care until it's you who is subject to a false trial. Like it might, it might not matter if the judiciary is corrupt until you are the one whose life, whose livelihood is being taken away by that corrupt judiciary, or if the police force is corrupt, and so on and so forth. So, in, in a sense, I think it is right that that we that we should have these laws that that go beyond what the average person cares about, because ultimately it's the edge cases that the laws exist to protect. No, I, I agree with that. I mean, you know, and I think this also reflects a difference between European and American values, right? A European yeah. value meaning we trust our governments and regulators more than we do in the United States, <laughs> right? Which is not to say that I either completely trust them, but the U.S. has much more of a, you know, inherent distrust of government, but also a distrust of companies, whereas in Europe they give much more authority to their regulators to do things. And, you know, not to say that one of those approaches is necessarily right, you know, I don't read cookie notices. I don't read cookie notices, not that I entirely don't care about them, but, you know, from a risk-reward perspective <laughs> or a cost-benefit analysis, you know, 20 minutes of my time reading terms and conditions of a website isn't worth it. I mean, I need to get to the website as a practical matter or I'll accept whatever they give me, but, you know, I also, given the default preference, you know, probably would like to limit what some websites know about me. You know, as a practical matter, mostly companies want to know my every thought, belief, and desire to market stuff to me, and I guess I don't care about that too much, but one could imagine it being used for all sorts of nefarious purposes, and some governments and companies do do that sort of thing, and it is something people are rightly somewhat worried about. So, at the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned um, Google and Amazon being they're being subject to fines. Um, so I don't know anything about that. I haven't. I don't. I haven't read a news article in like I don't know three years or something like that. I just stay blissfully 
unaware of um, just podcasts you know world events and you know things like that I'm just like if it doesn't concern my immediate uh, if it's not my immediate vicinity I just don't care you know what I mean so good bad or ugly whatever um, so relating to that and then touching on what you just said because I think everybody's had that story it's happened to me several times where your phone's on on the table Actually, all our phones are in this room now, so God only knows what's going to happen after this podcast. But you have your, your, your phone on, on the table, and you're having a discussion about whatever you're talking about. And then you go on to Instagram, and all of a sudden, a movie you were talking about or a product you were talking about is now featured on, on the ads, like what's being marketed to you, um, which is terrifying. Um, and just, like, how that can even happen just... Like, I just don't understand how that can mm. actually happen. Like, how is that even allowed? Like, how is that even a thing? How is that even possible? Um, so I guess maybe, I guess two things. Google and Amazon, because you did educate me on that. And then um, as far as um, social media, like, how, does, how do these regulations affect, if at all, um, any type of social media use? So I'll throw that one out there. So, so the Google and Amazon uh, finds are, are mostly pretty boring, pretty technical stuff, largely to do with cookie data, so the programs okay. that these websites install on your computers to track what you have done on other websites to then, as Ryan was saying, sell you more goods to um, drive inferences about what you're going to do. And they, for various complicated technical reasons, hadn't been adhering to the GDPR with respect to those, which led to massive fines for them. But um, I think that sort of um, what's perhaps a more interesting topic is the uh, question about social media because it, it does kind of tie into that. Mm. Um, the way in which these inferences can be used to not just give you things that um, you are good for you, but give mm. you things that what that the company wants to sell you. And it's well known that people become more engaged the more extreme content is in, in, right. in whatever fashion. So for example, let's say you look up a boxing match, you might then be shown a, a mixed martial arts match by, um, by the search engine algorithm or by the video uh, suggestion algorithm. You might then be suggested a bare knuckle boxing match. <laughs> so we want to get things sort of increasingly brutal because they want to keep you engaged just to, just to see if you're going to keep on biting. Because the more engaged you are, the more adverts you're going to look at, the more things that, that you're going to be sold. And there have been some real life examples of where this has allegedly gone terribly wrong. Uh, one is uh, a girl called Molly Russell, who uh, was uh, in her early teens, and she used lots of uh, social media like Instagram, and uh, she was a troubled girl. She uh, was contemplating suicide, and she was suggested various posts on suicide, some of which arguably glorified suicide, not by any human, but by the algorithm, because it was in the interest of the algorithm to promote things that it thought that she would be interested in. And it promoted progressively more extreme uh, uh, content of this nature. And uh, sadly, she killed herself. And of course, establishing causation is, is impossible yeah, yeah. In, these, in these sorts of things. But there was an inquest uh, which was held recently in the UK. So that's where somebody dies and an um, <coughs> official governmental body investigates 
the causes of that death. Not to uh, criminally accuse anyone, it's not a civil case, it's just to find out what had happened and make recommendations as to what might change in the future. And broadly speaking, what was found was that it, it couldn't be ruled out that the uh, content that she was viewing online that was being promoted to her by these algorithms played some kind of potential role in her thinking. So didn't rule it in, didn't, didn't, didn't rule it out. And that is a, obviously an extreme case, but one can imagine lots of situations in which people who have perhaps a violent tendency watch the kinds of videos that I was mentioning, somebody who, ha who has a tendency towards self-harm might watch videos of or uh, read content of, of that kind of a nature which then encourages them to cause harm. Um, and I'll take it back to um, one of the things that, uh, that Ryan was talking about earlier in terms of the EU AI Act. One of the things that the AI Act, uh, the new regulation, in its current form, it's only a draft, one of the things that which it would do is to ban um, artificially intelligent content or content generated by artificial <coughs> intelligence which subconsciously causes a person to suffer physical or psychological harm. I would argue that there is a reasonable um, case for saying that an algorithm which suggests uh, self-harm content might fall into that outright ban <laughs> category. Yeah. But then you're going pretty broad in terms of what you're banning. Are you going to ban all of YouTube? Are you going to ban all of Google? Because it might suggest something that it thinks you want to see, even if it is harmful. And it gets us back into the questions that Ryan was raising. You know, at what point do, do we step in as regulators? Because actually there is a degree of freedom of speech, freedom of thought, that maybe we shouldn't just be prohibited from seeing these sorts of things. Maybe somebody does want to, you know, let, 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 let's say, see content about alcohol, even though it's harmful, or uh, piercings, or whatever it may be. So there are certain tattoos. things which... Tattoos. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So, um, so, so there are some, they're, they're real philosophical questions that we need to think about as societies. You know, what is it we're going to prevent these social media platforms from pushing? Well, then you keep going, and then eventually you get to a point where it goes, well, what is harm? Yeah. Right? And then that becomes problematic because what's harmful to you is may or may not be harmful to me, and then may or may not be harmful to you, and then blow that up on a, a provincial level or a state level or county level, then national level, then it gets... That gets squirrely, and that was um that was a Br that was a British girl. Mm. That was recent. Yes, well, her, her death was a few years ago, but the inquest, okay. the uh, <clears throat> investigation into it, was very recent. So that was weeks. even a few years ago. Mm. And that was okay. That is so crazy. So she was actually getting, she was seeing content that was um, related to her deteriorating mental health, and it was just oh here you go, here you go, here you go. Yeah, that's right. And I wow. think the, the God, that's terrifying. Yeah, and the companies have, I, th I think, put in various safeguards, but as to how effective they are, difficult to say, because there's a proliferation of content, the algorithms are constantly being changed and tweaked and updated, so it's a difficult thing to stay on top of, but at the same time, these are important issues that they're playing with. So, you have young kids, right? Uh, one young kid. One young kid, and you have one older and... So basically, the one that's older, who's a teenager, that's kind of the one where I'm looking at, which is, as a parent then, like when you hear something like that, with your knowledge of AI and, like, does that concern you at all? Um, yeah. Well, I guess everything concerns you when you're a parent, right? But you know what right. I mean? <laughs> well, I mean, you know, there is a lot of online content that, that not only my eldest daughter, probably no one should be viewing online, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. 
I don't know that I spend particular time worrying that an algorithm is guiding her toward it, but you know, one does worry about online content in all sorts of forms that is really harmful again for anyone to view. And these are challenging issues, how we deal with that technically and socially and what sort of things we think are harmful content and whether we want to stop people from saying them. And even politically, you know, these algorithms have generated more engagement by driving people toward extreme political philosophies. And, you know, that has probably not been so great for the fabric of society. That's a good segue. So earlier today, I was talking about, um, or a friend of mine was uh, talking about Andrew Tate. If you know this guy, everybody seems to know this guy now. I'm like, I don't know, I've seen maybe five minutes clip total, right, of this guy speaking. To me, it's funny because of like, just how insane this shit, like, my sense of humor is just like, I'll say anything to get a laugh, right? Like, so if, you know, there's some stuff I've said in private that if that was ever public would be really, really bad because I say it as a joke. Um, so it's funny, like, when I hear about, and the, I was talking to a girl, so she was saying, I, I guess his stuff is, is anti, like, women are, like, women suck, I think is essentially what his message is. I'm not entirely sure. Um, but then relating that to freedom of speech and expression thought, how is it then that, and I guess that also kind of ties into, like, the fact that there were two U.S. elections that were really hot button when it came to this stuff, because then people were getting put into camps that just kept getting more and more and more extreme, and then all of a sudden the the blue guy is a is a fascist and the red guy is a is a dictator, right? It's just sort of strange how it's that upping the ante all the time. So anyway, kind of tie it all together. I'm curious about, I guess, kind of furthering the the social media debate. Um, how does that tie into just keeping track of of that? Like, how is it even that? I just, yeah, because again, I just think it's amusing when, when people get so um, angry about, like, just don't listen to the guy then. Like, I, I just don't really understand. It's like, okay, he's an idiot. You don't like what he says. Then just go listen to someone else. That's fine. You know, people want to be trolls. They can just be trolls, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. Anything you want? Can I, did I give you anything to, to go on there? The Jacob has a history of answering these questions first, but, um, <laughs> well... Difficult questions. I mean, I think that, though I haven't watched him, I'm familiar with him and vaguely what's going on. And other people watch him non-ironically and subscribe to his philosophy, which is probably a fairly harmful philosophy to a lot of people. Right. And so... But how is that any different than just picking up, like, Mein Kampf? You know what I mean? Like, how, well, how and, is that... And indeed, as you kind of have a discussion of social values, right... I think that there are some countries that have banned, for example, the sale of that right. book, right? Yeah. Or things associated with that book, Germany has, right? right? Yeah. Whereas the United States has a philosophy, let it all in, it's protected by the Constitution. If you want to say something deeply offensive and racist, you are constitutionally, generally speaking, allowed to do that, express your opinion. And, you know, one of the issues I think people have experienced is that that sort of thing isn't necessarily harmless. It really does spread online and it spreads philosophy. And 
So then does it kind of come down to like more uh, uh, regulating morality then? Because then how do you sort of pick and choose? Well, it, it, is, it is difficult, although, you know, it's not, it's not a problem that areas of law aren't used to dealing with, right? You have your, okay. your easy cases, like if we're going to prohibit things based on racism, you know, yeah. let's ban swastikas and mention the, right. you know, the Third Reich and promoting, you know, fascism, right? I mean, that's a pretty easy case for most people, although, you know, very strong free speech advocates are against that in the United <laughs> right. States. Yeah. And then you have, you know, gradually decreasing towards the center, you know, how much of this do we want to cut out? And yeah, it gets to a point where reasonable people could differ and and the law has to, you know, has norms that it has to enforce like that. But it does come back to basic questions of what kind of society do we want to live in? Do we want to live in a society where you are absolutely free to express your nastiest innermost thought on social media? in ways sometimes that also target directly individuals in harmful sorts of ways, um, you know, or do we want to say there has to be some degree of kind of civility and decency and respect on social media? And again, I think you get back in part to a European versus U.S. values stance on that. Yeah. Some of it is done by these companies which have their own terms of service. Right? And then, you know, again, you know, do you want Facebook to be able to say this is the sort of stuff you're able to say and not, or do you want a regulator to say this is the sort of stuff you're able to do or not? And, you know, Facebook has a lot of power for people who live their lives or have their business life based on, like Andrew Tate did, you know, his social media presence. If social media right. can say, you know, you violated our terms of service, off you go. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything to that? I agree with all of that. I, I, I think the difficulties in particular arise where you have businesses which are taking societally important decisions. So it may be that society doesn't want to have any constraints on a particular um, uh, code of, uh, or, uh, or uh, mode of conduct, um, things that people can say. Or maybe there's too much disagreement in order for people to be able to settle on a particular view and the d- default that it falls at is, is having no constraints. That, that, that's totally legitimate. The difficulty then I think arises if you have a particular group within an organisation who then say, well, regardless of what society says, regardless of the lack of agreement at the societal level, we don't think that's right, so we are going to ban this particular person from our um, social media. And where, where you've got a plurality of providers, that's okay because people can look at another provider, they can choose to opt out, they can get their news from somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But where you have something which approaches a monopoly, uh, where everyone is getting their um, news and social feeds through that particular provider, or at least a critical mass of people are, then I think it becomes problematic if it is solely that provider which is setting the agenda. And this is where you get into issues around Twitter, what Elon Musk has been criticising the current board of Twitter for, for example, removing Donald Trump and not removing other people, being inconsistent. Likewise with Facebook, where it is sometimes accused of being too right-wing, sometimes Mm -hmm. accused of of being too left-wing. And in those sorts of situations, I think there is either a case for the government laying down some kind of regulations or potentially for breaking up these these bodies and destroying the, the monopolies, as has been done with other industries, for example, big oil in the uh, early 20th, 20th century. 
Do you know uh, much about Tiger Woods? I know a little about Tiger Woods. Okay, so I, I... No, actually, I suppose the answer's no. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I don't really either, but I remember watching, um, what was a HBO documentary? It was a two-parter. And I got three-quarters of the way through the first episode before I realized that Tiger Woods wasn't even in the documentary that was named Tiger, which I thought was kind of interesting. Were you watching Tiger King? No, no, it was... It was uh, it's about Tiger Yeah, Woods no mullets. It was, yeah, it was the right guy, yeah. Um... Because I thought it was sort of like a last dance thing where it's about Chicago Bulls and okay, but the guys from the Chicago Bulls are actually participating in this documentary. Anyway, uh, when it came to, once Tiger Woods started to win and now he was becoming this worldwide superstar, that was when Nike wanted to pick him up um, for like this massive contract. And I only saw it once, so that I'm going to kind of just go general because I don't remember the details. But that was sort of the first time that Nike created an ad campaign that had to do with race. Because it was then this black guy in a white sport. And this black guy is unbelievable. And so then it became this sort of the first time that then, okay, this is going to be our... Um, it's sort of like Be Like Mike, but more with uh, a racial element to it. And what I thought was so interesting about it was... I don't know what year that would have been, I guess the 2000s, early 2000s. But I can I started to see how complex things started to get when you start mixing corporations with this is what's good for the public and we want to associate our brand with something that's socially good and those other brands, you know, they're not as, I guess the, the modern term would be, they're not as woke as us and so we're going to kind of throw shade at them for that reason. And now it seems like we're at such a point where it's almost inescapable that, like, how is it that we're having moral discussions about platforms such as Facebook and Twitter which and, and YouTube, any of those, where they're global and they have tremendous influence, and as you said, they, they're monopolizing. Like, there's only, like, four social media platforms, or three, I guess, you know? And that's kind of it. Those guys control the whole narrative and it just seems like it's it seems like it's so difficult to just separate the value from the business and and then you throw in AI generating posts and and pushing you towards different views because you clicked on something that was maybe a three out of ten so we'll give you a five out of ten and then you just kinda keep going down the ladder. It just seems like because I'm I mean I'm younger than you guys, so for me it seems like and I hate social media, I just, I have such a problem with it, like, it just bothers me. But I'm just curious, like, as as professionals and then just as people, because um, you've seen so much change over your lifetimes already. We're not um, that old, Marcus. <laughs> but, I mean, this is all I know. Like, I don't know a time before we the do, internet, yeah. really, you know, I mean, we, 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 you know, these, I mean, these two old guys that I'm hanging out with. Yeah. <laughs> before, before Facebook, I remember when Facebook came in in oh, yeah, 2007. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I remember when uh, I remember floppy disks. You know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um, I remember, I remember, uh, when, I remember uh, when computers came out. Uh, lines, did you, know? you have to crank it? Yeah, you know? they, were, yeah, they, were, they yeah. were big. I remember dial-up modems. Yeah, that funny uh, sound they used to make. But no, it's, it's a yeah. fair point. Like it's t today's like, every generation now. Like this, this is the only way they 
um, that, that people can, uh, the only thing people can remember. But I think the issue about brands and values is something which has been going on for, for a very long time. I mean, back in, I think it was the 19, I don't know, 50s maybe, um, Ford got pulled up um, because it, um, the board said that they wanted to use their capital to increase social mobility and to do good for the world. And one of their major shareholders said, that's not what you're supposed to be using your capital for. You're supposed to be using your capital to make profits for us as shareholders so that you can declare Fine. dividends. Right. And the okay. shareholder won. It was a major oh. um, <laughs> okay, in um, uh, US and indeed worldwide corporate law that um, generally speaking, boards are not there to do social good. That's what governments are for. Boards are there to make profits. But we're seeing a real sort of shift in the other direction now. Last five or ten years, um, ESG, environmental, social and governance, has become a, a much more important part of what businesses are required to do, not just from a marketing perspective. And arguably there is a lot of marketing around this, greenwashing at sometimes schools. Uh, ethics washing, um, but also increasingly from a legal perspective, businesses are increasingly being required not just to have um, in mind what long-term value is for shareholders, but also long-term value for the world, or at the very least not making the world significantly worse. And there, was, there have been some interesting things going on, particularly in the US courts around this. So uh, Ben & Jerry's, the ice cream company, <laughs> okay. um, who are like, like, like part of their whole branding. Was it's weird. ice cream. How is yeah. it? Well, exactly. It's just ice cream, so, man. Social activism <laughs> is a big part of Ben & Jerry's brand yeah, and well, ethos. Or, or, yeah, or, and or, or, or always has been. Um, and um, they've recently been in, been in difficulty because Ben & Jerry sold their business a, a long time ago to Unilever. Um, but part of what, when they sold it, was a agreement that the Ben and Jerry's would maintain this um, independent board, uh, and the board would be able to make social decisions regarding where, how, and where Ben and Jerry's is marketed. And one of the things they said recently is that we're not going to sell in certain parts of the Middle East, in particular Judea and Samaria, or the, the okay. occupied Palestinian ter territories, depending on who you. Who right. you ask, mm -hmm. um, yeah. and this caused a significant amount of difficulty because a lot of the shareholders of Unilever said, "Well, you, you should just sell where people will buy. Yeah. Uh, you shouldn't be picking and choosing political battles." Uh, and it's an ongoing thing in the U.S. court, so it remains to be seen where where this will come out. Um, but 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 this general point about how far businesses should try to uphold social values and what social values businesses should uphold, I think that's a really interesting question which is continuing to, to develop. Couldn't give a much better answer than that. But <laughs> that was a pretty good answer. <laughs> but the mix of business and social activism is a long-standing issue that is still evolving and you know uh, again reflects different views about what the purpose of business is and it has evolved you know Rarely do you hear now express the opinion by a company that our sole motivation is increasing shareholder profits, right? At the least, companies are essentially expected to do no evil, right? And, and there is a view that this is all cynical and in the name of making long-term profits, that you know you do social good and this right, benefits yeah. your shareholders. But as as Jacob said, ESG is is now a mainstream fixture in corporate governance that you know businesses are supposed to look at their environmental and social governance and impact and that you know their funds are doing well and there are many funds and businesses where investors are actively seeking that sort of thing out 
Um, you know, and the, you know, Ford was a good example. Disney is a very current example of a a business that you know has significant political impact in Florida, running afoul of the current political party on social issues in a way that is having a significant impact on both national and local politics and on Disney shareholders. And there are some people who say to Disney, you know, you ought to be fighting for social causes that are, you know, on the right side of history. And other people saying, you know, I'm investing in Disney to make money and you shouldn't be doing any of this. And historically, Disney has given to both political parties in Florida and, you know, used to be one of the dominant forces in Florida politics and has now, you know, lost the autonomy of their kind of special autonomous region in Florida on account of, you know, running afoul of, of Ron DeSantis. So it is, you know, these have been issues with us for a long time and they are evolving issues. So I guess really the only difference then is just the, the scale at which you can communicate these issues because now we're so connected globally because like you said, like the 1950s, like, so it's not like it's a, it's like, oh, in the last 20, 30 years, all of a sudden this is a thing. Like, and I'm sure before the 50s that was a thing too, where it's just the, the issue of morality and business and... So I, I'm forgetting my law school history, and I can't remember this, I think this predates that case where Henry Ford was brought up in court on account of donating significantly through Ford to charities, and you know, whether or not he was allowed to do that with shareholder money, and he did not want to take the position you know, giving to charity is financially good for Ford. I mean, he wanted to take the position that giving to charity was something that a business should be doing. Um, was that the same case? I, th I think we're probably talking about the same, same case. case yeah. It's, it's all kind of blurring back wrong. from the <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but yes, I mean, no, these, are, these are very old issues. As well they should be. I mean, yeah. corporations are a dominant fixture of society and economy, and they have obligations you know, certainly legal ones not to do bad things, and they're growing understanding that they have obligations to be a social force for good. But then people do disagree on what that means and what social good is. And one of the interesting things, if you actually look back through the history of corporations, is the original corporations were for the public good. The Corporation of London was the merchants of London who got together to, to deal with public works in London, and it still continues to exist. So the original incorporated bodies were, were literally there for the public good. Right. Things like utilities, water, uh, railways, that, that was what corporations were. And it only somewhat later evolved into profit-making organisations in the 1600s or, or, or thereabouts with the first limited liability companies. Um, so that's why I'm saying the, the social import of corporations, I mean they're just fictions which we've invented to do right. certain things. There's nothing which inheres in the nature of corporations that, that we can't choose to change. And even now, actually, there, there's kind of a backlash against the ESG models, like, like Ryan was saying, in Florida at the political level, uh, and even at the investment level. Uh, a friend of mine started up an um, uh, investment firm or a asset manager called Strive fairly recently. They've done really, really well. And their whole investment uh, model, the requirement, is that the company not be interested in ESG. So if it's like a, an energy company, they would only invest if you are not, if, if you're just looking at oil, or you know, you're not looking at any wind or whatever the case may be. So, so, and they've done very well. And lots of um, particularly Republican states are pushing their pensions into this fund because it kind of accords with their political 
views, um, as well as uh, ultimately profit-making ones. Anything to add to that? I like that. That was good. That was good. We got a few minutes left. That's fat. These go by quicker. Maybe not. Maybe you guys think this shit takes a long time. But um, we figure we'll end on a lighter note because I learned a, a fascinating bit of British culture uh, when I walked in the room today, and then uh, Jacob actually already knows about this, so I'm the I'm the odd one out here. But tell us about this. Uh, Conkers. Yeah. yeah Switch gears. I'm into the semifinals of the Peckham Conquer Club. <laughs> There, there was cheating involved, but cheating was explicitly encouraged. <laughs> okay. You, you take a conquer, which, you know, sadly, I just threw them all out because in the cold light of day, I thought, why do I have 50 conquers in my room? I'm not really going to want to take these back to America. But they're basically large nuts from a tree. You drill a hole through them, you tie them on a string, and you throw them against someone else's conquer on a string, and you win if you break their conquer or get it off the string. And the game doesn't involve that much skill because when I had very accurate hard throws and my conquer hit their conquer, sometimes my conquer broke. And yet when their conquer hit my conquer, sometimes my conquer would break. You know, the best strategy seemed to be you were also encouraged to use violence, you know, to <laughs> stampsy, you know, to get the get you know, get the person to drop their conquer and stamp it. And you know, uh, my exposure to this started with the kids league, which was before the adults league. This was at a pub, so there was a lot of alcohol use. Not with the children, but you know, <laughs> in the semifinals, one of the kids knocked off the other kid's conquer. When the kid went to grab it, stomped the kid's hand. And, you know, the kid started crying, and his dad, without putting his beer down, you know, took the kid under his arm and walked him off. And, and then the kid who stomped kind of was like, ooh, sorry, but, you know, what was I going to do? And, you know, the dad was like, you know, you did good, son. It, it, it was, it was, it was uh, eye-opening into British culture. And, uh, you know, little did I know that kids here did that growing up, and Jacob said he did the same. Uh, well, uh, not, not the stamping on. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, you're nice. I'm sorry, you're nice. But yeah, it's a valuable uh, part of it. Do they, so do they not have conkers in the US? Do they, do, do the relevant trees not? Well, what kind of nut is it even? I'm really sorry I threw it all out, but um, it's like an acorn type thing. Or? I mean, it was. I mean, it's basically yeah, like an acorn, right. but it was. It was. It had a shape that particularly inured to this sort of game. Mm. I, I mean, one. I think an acorn. Maybe more like a small pumpkin. Yeah, like a very. Oh, I mean, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're talking about yeah. Right. Yeah. And you didn't get a lot of bruises doing it because you know when you hit the conquer it would rebound into you, and if you missed. It would swing around and hit you in the leg or the arm or something. I mean, which would hurt. P the p yeah, then people were wrestling on the ground, you know, fairly aggressively. Um, <laughs> oh, that's great. Yeah. Yeah, but valuable. Uh, yeah, this is this is from the age before there were smartphones for kids, right? Jacob and I did grow up before smartphones, or e even cell phones. <laughs> you know, back in my day, you watched rain on the window making interesting patterns because there just wasn't as much to do, and you know that was entertaining. You know, in, with with modern attention spans, you know, it's hard to get kids to go from con you know cell phones to conquers. But you know, drunk hipsters were really into it. It's good though. It's good to fight within reason. It's good. Yeah, no one got seriously injured, which was a bit of a surprise. I, I was thinking as the night wore on. They self-regulate. You know, in this instance, they did. I rather thought someone was going to pull a knife at some point, but no one did. But you know, this is probably just 
you know, the growing hipsterization of it. And perhaps, you know, back in the day, there was even more violence, but, you know. So British kids play Conkers, Canadian kids play hockey, and then, I don't know, what do American kids do back in the day? Mm. Well, now kids don't go outside anymore, but when you were growing up. Oh, uh, <laughs> You know, if only we'd had Conkers. You, you just know. whip each other with rocks kind of thing? Yeah, what did we do back in the day? People played sports. I mean, not yeah. hockey. Well, I was, you know, not hockey so much, but a bit in Chicago. Um, it's well, cold where I'm from, man. Yeah, no, it is. <laughs> it's cold in Chicago, too. That's true, yeah. That's well, true. We, had, we had, you know, when I was growing up, the Bulls. So having just started watching The Last Dance, you know, I went up through that. People were into sports, you know. And that was before really dial-up internet, too. <laughs> You know, which is hard to imagine, but you know, back in the day, if you didn't know something and you didn't have a set of Encyclopedia Britannica, yeah, you just kind of wondered what S-O-L. the answer was, or yeah. asked an adult and they pretended to know the answer or something. Right now, you could Google anything, and that was not the world we grew up in, or that I grew up in. That's right. There you go. You get a floppy disk with, you know. Any final thoughts? But know, apparently, well, well, I found I found a similar one, what is which it? is. Um, Every group of friends has a fat one, and if, if you don't, uh, if there isn't a fat one in your group of friends, you are probably the fat one. Okay, so it's the same idea. If you can't, yeah. Yeah. Similar, yes. It's the same category of, um, of uh, uh, social observations. There you go. So then, there we go. So that works. So I'd say, if you're the smartest person in the room, you need to find a different room. I can safely say I am definitely the stupidest one in the room. So it's, so much fun being here. I love doing these. It's great. always great to uh, chat with you guys. And, well, that makes me the and fat do this one. Stuff. <laughs> well, I was thinking maybe I'm the fat one. I mean, uh, <laughs> we're going to put it this way. Neither of us are the athlete. <laughs> I think we know who the athlete okay. is. Okay, all right. We can agree on that. The brains and the brawn. <laughs> there we go. I like it. All right. Well, good stuff, guys. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. Cool, cool, cool. There we go. All that right. was fun.